Keegan and Company. It's Keegan and Company, the company you keep. That's it. That's got to be it. Welcome back to the Keegan and Company podcast. If you guys are new to the show, my name is Keegan Hipgrave. If you haven't already, jump over, give us a little like and subscribe. It's a great way for us to, I guess, build up the podcast, um, enhance our production and have really great guests on like I have today. Um, in this episode, I'm joined by a professional iron woman who has just been around Australia on a surf ski, Bonnie Hancock. How are you going? <laughs> I'm very well, thank you. Yeah, good to be on dry land at the moment. Um, <laughs> Actually, it was just over a year since I got back from my big paddle. So. Yeah, I, I'm so keen to unpack yeah. this because you went around Australia on a surf ski. Like what what <laughs> makes you think, you know what, today I'm going to do it. Like this is what's going to happen. Yeah, it's funny. And that's always the biggest question is is why and, and you know, what was the inspiration? And honestly, I never even knew anyone had done it until I picked up a book. Okay. and. It was mid-COVID and the library had just opened up again. I'm super old school. I yeah. love reading books. And and I went to the library and I, I picked up a book. It was called Fearless yep. and it was about Freya Hofmeister. She's the German woman who paddled around Australia in 2014. 2009, sorry. Another guy did in 2014. But she broke the record for fastest to do so. And there was only four people prior to me. I was the fifth. And I read that book and I was just like, I'm going to do that. You it was like a it gut in. feeling and, and I hadn't had that since I was 12 years old and, and wanted to be an iron woman. I remember that feeling so well sitting at home in Coffs Harbour with my sisters and looking at the TV and wanting to be an iron woman. I picked up that book and it was just this like, I'm going to do that. Did it? Did you have to brew on it for a little bit? Because I imagine like it's, it's such a big thing. Like it's not like, you know what, I'm just going to do a fucking – I'm just going to go back from Cooley, you say, or North yep. or the yep. Spit. Like exactly. you're going around Australia. Spot on. And I mean I only really switched to specialist ski paddling at 28. So mm. I'm, I'm 33 now. I was 32 when I did this paddle. Um, I'd always been Iron Woman. The ski was never my strong leg. So okay. I was a swimmer and a board paddler growing up. Yeah. But for sure, for six months, it was like, I'm, I'm going to do this was the initial reaction. But then it was actually looking realistically at what it would cost, what it would take. Um, you know, it was a huge expense this trip. I'd need a catamaran, jet ski, a crew that was crazy enough to come with me, you yeah, know. Yeah. A third of the coastlines are populated with crocodiles. So it was probably six months of going back and forth. And at different times, I thought this too much. And after six months, that feeling was still there. still there. Like I need, I need to do this for for me was the initial reason, and then it became so much bigger than that. I sat down with your partner Maddie probably like just as you got back. Yeah. Um, he was doing some stuff with Movember, and we, we were doing some the runs on uh, North Burley Hill, and we sat down and obviously was watching like was watching on Instagram, was following along really closely. Um, because of the, our background at Northcliffe, you were yeah. you actually I don't know if you remember, but you were at. Uh, Northcliffe Surf Club when I was like a, a grom, like when I was a kid and you did a lot of training with my sister, Crazy. Katie Hipgrave. Yes. Um, and so obviously you've been following your career in the Iron Women series and so I was watching and I caught up with Maddie afterwards and the logistics behind the, the paddle was yeah. insane and I'm keen to unpack a little bit more about that later on. But just like could you tell us a little bit about, I guess, some of the fun facts because it was like 16,000 kilometres, right? Like, Well, first, that that's a fun fact to start. So it was going to be 16,000 based on what those prior to me had done. Okay. 
So that was the amount I expected. We ended up going a lot further out to sea than yeah. initially planned to basically get the shortest distance. Okay. So I ended up paddling 12,700 kilometres. Wow. I saved around that 3,000 kilometres. First of all, I cut straight across the Great Australian Bight. So that big section of coastline at the bottom of Australia, when you look at the map, everyone prior to me had hugged the coast. Yeah. I went 500k out to sea to cut straight across. It saved me a thousand kilometres of paddling. It was incredibly scary. And it's it, there's killer whales, there's great white sharks, there's five to six metre waves. It's, it's hard to explain. I had to do a lot of night paddling out there because mm. the longer you're out there, the greater the chance that the weather will turn and you're going to get stuck in a storm. And that's frightening because Antarctic is just there. There's huge winds that come up. Um, let's rewind because I want to start probably from the start in the preparation and the lead up because I, I, I'm sure there's a million stories of, of, of you on this trip. Um, the preparation, the lead up, you talked about your team. How do you build out a team? Is it a captain? You're obviously talking about the weather. Like yeah. you probably have to lean on people who've done similar things before. Yeah. How did you build out the team? My, the biggest asset I had was my husband, Matt, and I'm glad you mentioned him because having that person to talk to, that reassurance, that support and Matt is an amazing people person. I swear. I've been on the Gold Coast for 15 <laughs> years. He's been here half the time. He knows double the people yeah. as I do. And I have a pretty big network. So it was putting our heads together and saying, right, who do we know that can help us? Hmm. Who do we know in the sailing industry or, you know, who's been involved in boating or fishing? And we started, it's basic, we started talking to local fishermen. Hmm. Um, that sort of led us more towards, um, you know, in the end it was super yacht captains and meteorologists to learn about the weather and conditions. And we basically decided we needed a catamaran because I was about 100 kilometres out to sea each day. You can't be going back and forth from land it's, to the You boat. would do around 22,000 K because someone did that. One of the guys who did the record basically hugged the coast super, super close and you would do a huge amount of kilometres doing it. So to save time, you're better off anchoring behind reefs and islands and mm. out to sea because if you look at the coastline of Australia, it's almost super jagged. It's by no means a perfect circle. Yep. So to actually stay out with the catamaran and take the the deep line, you're going to save a lot of time. It, it took two months to get used to paddling that far out to sea. It's incredibly scary. There's no land in sight. But basically it was deciding we need a catamaran, yep. finding the skipper. And in finding the skipper, we went through maybe five contacts to find someone. Who Is that like willing. an interview process? Like you're sitting down with each interview, like to yeah. see if you get to know them and like if you like them because you're going to be spending months with them, well, right? To be honest, there were a lot of candidates who were in until they heard exactly what I was going to do. I said, I'm going to push, you know, 100 kilometres a day. It's going to be paddling all day. It's going to be really, really hard work. And yeah, a lot of them sort of tapped out. So yeah, yeah, yeah basically. Yeah. So it was a big process to get there. I think it might have been two months before we left that we locked in the skipper and crew. Like wow. we left like everything, it sounds super disorganized, but there's just not many people willing to come with you for that amount of time. And also so much to do. So much. And prep pool. So you so yeah. you have the skipper physio? I would love to sit here and say I had a physio doctor, I had the whole um, thing. you know, <laughs> even a, a chef. We literally had our crew who were support for me, sailing the boat, uh, cleaning, you know, on, on a roster system of watching me on the boat, doing massage. Like they had to be like a hybrid of really everything. Yeah. yeah. And 
that's why it was so crucial to have the right people who were willing to learn because getting on that boat there were three people in the crew who had never even been on a catamaran and by the end of the trip they were helping to sail that catamaran it was cool to see their development so who were the other team who were the other team members in the so in my the team? core crew i had Blake Jamie Ben and my husband Matt yep. so the the trip took 8 months to do i was planning to do it in 6 and i didn't take weather into consideration yeah. but Matt and Ben were mainly on land so I really didn't see my husband much for that eight months. We, yeah. we were married a year and then I threw him into this crazy trip. And <laughs> what we, did I sign up for? Right, literally. Yeah. So that was a whole challenge in itself because there's no reception that far out to sea. Mm. The other two boys were on the boat with me, Skipper, and we would sort of connect with different crews at different times. So at, at, we had a one boat take us to Perth and then we sort of linked up with a fishing boat that took us a bit of the way. We linked up with another catamaran, a third catamaran to get us home. So, yeah, it was incredibly expensive and Matt was doing a lot of hard work on land, you know, dozens of calls a day to yeah. find that next skipper because no one could come with us the whole time. We had to find people who knew the coastline incredibly well in different of sections. Of course. Um, I look at you as someone who's obviously like, you're, if you're going to do Iron Woman or Iron Man, it's bloody tough. Like I did a little bit of surf life saving growing up, nowhere near as close to you. It's hardworking, but it was always so tough. Like early morning swim sessions, um, board. I mean, when you guys would do the paddle back from Cooley or from the spear, I was talking to my sister about that last <laughs> night. And um, she was say, she actually was saying, um, she, I was saying, oh, I've got Bonnie coming on tomorrow. She said, oh, like say day to her. She's like, oh, I remember always just remember when like she would lap me or she would go past me and she'd be like so <laughs> encouraging. And like, <laughs> so she had some really nice things to say about oh, you. But I guess- like that in itself, like being a professional Ironwoman, you guys I think train probably harder than definitely footy players. Like I could say that from experience. <laughs> but what makes you want to be like, like push it that next little bit? Because there's a difference between going around Australia and, you know, yeah. doing an Ironwoman. Totally. And I think it's really cool you mentioned that and you've obviously been so successful in your own career that a lot of people that start in surf life saving, you know, whether they branch in triathlon or mm. track or footy or – um, there's a lot of people who have that that base with nippers where you're kind of learning, I guess, not only skills but resilience as well. Like yeah. you've got to take on these big waves as a little nipper and, and get back out there or you get knocked down. And yeah. I think it's such an amazing sport for kids to get into. And I think for me I was just always – I know water baby is probably an overused term but just from a young age loved the water – Yep. And I actually loved, you know, I looked up to all of the surfers and I always say if I wasn't an eye woman, I, I think I would have been a surfer. But um, it's it's three training sessions a day. Um, I was doing that from the age of 17, but from around the age of 12, I was training twice a day, really solid, like six and a half K sessions in the pool. Yeah. Um, you know, you're on your board in the afternoon, training, running after board. So really it's three sessions if you figure it out, but you've you get to that age of 17 and Coffs Harbour, it was just really too small of a place to do it. It was just my sisters and I and mm. a couple of other girls. So I made that, you know, packed packed the car up, came to the Gold Coast. Did you come with all your sisters came together? Courtney and I came up. Yep. So Courtney's still racing as an Iron Woman. She's <laughs> wow. still had race wins recently. Um, but I think for us it was, and this helped me in the paddle coming from such a small town, moving up and knowing the sacrifices you'd made. 
And it was a similar thing when I got to this paddle, you know, those sacrifices my husband and I made to even get to the start line. Like we sold both our cars. We were riding around on push bikes. Really? I gave up my dietitian clinics, my three clinics. Matt gave up his role at the Southport Sharks, um, you know, for, for that, that year with no guarantees coming back. So just to get to the start line, I was like, we owe it to ourselves to give this a big crack. From there, it was it was I had to do that that paddling. It was only me that could take those strokes. And at different times of the paddle, that became a burden too. It was an incredibly heavy burden to carry. Like I know all athletes have felt that at different times, right? Like whether your teammates are a bit injured and you've got to step up or whatever it was, it was just getting in the water each day and knowing I had to take the strokes to keep moving forward. It was it was a lot. But it's not like you're doing it for one day. Like you did it for 254 days, yeah? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so yeah. it's like, it's not like, oh, I'll just get through this session and then I've got tomorrow off. Yeah. It's like, I'm going to be doing this for the next month. Totally. And it was interesting. Like I think my near decade as a professional Ironwoman and having to back up and train every day, even when you are so sore mm-hmm. and your coach is like, see you tomorrow, you know, yeah, back yeah, in the pool yeah, tomorrow, yeah. like – I actually figured out early on in this paddle that the only time I would feel good was paddling out on day one. And (laughs) and I never, honestly, I truly never felt great. And any day after that, every day, I was sore beyond what I can describe. It felt like my back was literally breaking into. I had bulging discs in my back from a couple of months in. Um, The finger, my fingers, I couldn't move my fingers. They were locked in the paddling position at the end of each day. So you know, I just had to accept. I was like, this is different to really being a, a professional athlete where you get your body prime. This yeah, is yeah. like, I don't know, the Cliff Young shuffle, that guy that yeah, ran around. Like it, that was like equivalent, like my technique changed. It was just, it looked horrid. It felt horrid, but I got it done. So if we're, and with your technique, I imagine the ideal scenario is like elbows up. Yeah, rotation, sitting high, like, you know, bringing your paddles really at chest height. You look at my stroke throughout that thing from day one and how it changes. (laughs) It's like belly button high, like no rotation because I physically could not do the stroke, which is considered ideal because I was just so sore. Do you think your back was probably the biggest injury Mm -hmm. that you had throughout that? Definitely. My back and the fingers, because what I learned was your muscles can condition, but your joints can't. Yeah. So it was, I I became incredibly strong in my upper body, my lower body completely deconditioned from not walking on land for weeks at a time sometimes. But your joints, if you just constantly smash those joints in terms of the same rotation over and over, like essentially millions of times, they just inflame like it was it was incredible the inflammation that was in my body like it was they would try and like massage and sometimes my back was too sore to touch I'd be wincing so yeah I didn't see that coming I thought more shoulder injuries right like that's what I was worried about I got a little bit of golf elbow in WA but other than that shoulders what's golf elbow so it's essentially around near the joints but it's to do with the tendons sort of i think it's a golfer's injury and anything where you're putting pressure through that forearm and kind of bicep area my husband that could probably explain better but we got that diagnosed and each time i took a stroke you'd feel that pain in the same sort of spot yeah so yeah there's tennis elbow and golf elbow um and they're common injuries in those sports and paddlers can get those as well. Um, 
just because it's so many rotations and putting pressure through that blade every time. When you're going through, when you're obviously sore and injured, would you prefer to know what's going on? Like, would you prefer to have a doctor on board and be like, and have an x-ray or go into land and be like, yeah, this is what's going on? Or almost like, I kind of don't want to know about it because I'm going to do it anyway. That's actually an awesome question that I've never been asked because I would rather not know. (laughs) I've never been asked that. And I remember thinking that like through the paddle, I was like, I know something's terribly wrong with my back. This is before I got diagnosed. I was like, there's something really wrong. I kind of know what it is. Like I know yeah. it's bulging discs. It yeah. makes sense. But someone telling me that it is doesn't really help because the only way to fix that is to stop doing the activity that's inflaming it and I can't. I can't imagine you're going to stop regardless. No, no, literally even if – and and I did have that thought so many times I thought if I'm permanently injured after this like if I give myself I felt like arthritis or the disc isn't worth it that is when it kind of became about that it was something greater than myself because the reason I started was the world record yeah but gotcha for life and raising money for mental fitness charity gotcha for life I think that's truly what got me through some of those really hard days. So you would have gone past the point of permanent injury just to complete the complete the the lap. I I I truly think the mindset I was in, yeah, I was like whatever it takes. Yeah. Was kind of whatever it takes every day. And I think every day I just had that all you've got to do is take the first stroke. Yeah. And that's like anyone, right? Like if you're going through a really hard time in your personal life or, you know, say you're working towards a goal and you just think this is all too much, it's too hard, I can't do it, all you've got to do is take that first step or, or, or get there, get to the, the gym or, you know, go, go to work and, and start, um, you know, working towards a program, write the list and tick that first thing off the list. Like you, but the first I paddled in 24 hours, 235K you can't look beyond one kilometre in times of that because the lactic acid through your body and the pain you're in, sometimes you can only look to the next kilometre and that's all you need to do is break it down. I sat down with Ned um, maybe a month ago, a couple months ago, and he was talking about when he did his run um, across Australia, the exact same thing of what you said. He's like there's some days where he could not walk. Like he generally could not walk. Like his feet were ruined. His knees were ruined. He had like limp foot where he had like a little prop up. And I'm sure everyone's heard that story. Um, but he's like, all I had to do was just start. All yeah. I had to do was just put my shoes on. Yeah. And then all I had to do was take the first step. Let me get the first K under my belt. Yeah. And then by the end of the day, he's doing 60, 80, 100, 120 yeah. kilometer days. And it was strange because you never knew what was coming that day. And there were days where on the days I felt the absolute worst – through the day I'd have an albatross follow me all day, 500k out to sea, like, or I'd be surrounded by a pot of dolphins. And, like, you never know what's going to come if you give up. You don't know what's around the corner. Like, I know on the paddle I never felt great, but in whatever you're doing in that session, you might feel brilliant. You've just got to get started. Or, you know, as I said, you're working towards a goal. It's going to be hard at different times accepting that. Sometimes your best on a certain day might only be here. On other days, it's 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 a max effort. It's whatever the best is you can do on that day. That's all. I think take that takes the pressure off yourself too. Did the days vary between like? Because I imagine the conditions would play a huge part yeah. in your like. I'm look at someone like Ned. He can always yeah. run. Yeah. But you're you're in the. You're in the thick of the ocean, which is very unforgiving. Absolutely. You know what I mean? And with a surf life saving background as a nipper, like you'd know. 
the conditions are everything, right? Yeah. Like so in making my way around Australia, I talked to, as I said, um, a lot of skippers and I talked to the top meteorologists in the world. So Roger Batham, he advises the Olympians and the super yacht captains. He's there giving them real-time um, updates on what the weather's doing and telling them to tack left or right and what to do in the race. I spoke to him and said, everyone's paddled anti-clockwise. Yeah. And he said, you need to paddle clockwise. I said, why? Why am I going against what's been done? And he said the East Australian current, which runs along the east coast of Australia, um, the way I describe it to kids, it's literally the one of Finding Nemo that the turtles get in. (laughs) So he said, right, he said that will help you get a buffer on the world record. You've got to go about 20K out to sea to get it. It pushes the warm water from the Great Barrier Reef to Tassie. I went out and got in that current. So that shot me along. It's an extra couple of kilometres per hour. It's like a little super highway, they call it. So I got that current down. Then he said, getting across the bite, if you're going to come, get, you know, cut across it, you got to wait for a weather window. So that would be the heart, like imagine that'd probably be one of the biggest challenges going absolutely, across the bite. Absolutely. Because the, the winds predominantly go west to east. Okay. So back against you. But he said, it will come. The weather window will come at some stage. We only have to wait three days. Oh, how lucky. Three days. And I, they said, you paddle as Far and as fast as you can every day to get across there. We have 25 knot winds. So that's 25 knot winds for people who don't know the ocean is me gliding down runners with my paddle in the air for 500 meters at a time, like a couple of strokes, gliding down runners. Amazing. Except that meant seasickness. So the con of that, absolute sea. So the boat, the catamaran I was with, the swells were so big, I'd be you know, woohooing and then the boats ahead of me and they would drop out of sight. Like it, that's how big. And middle of the ocean, like the, you're out of helicopter range. So if something happens and you capsize that catamaran, there's no one coming for a few days. Did you feel like vulnerable or scared at all in those moments? hundred percent. Yep. Because I did so much night paddling. So I paddled around 16 to 18 hours a day out there, which is just now I look back and it became normal for me. There was one night where I fell out of my skits about 12 degrees in the water, so it's icy. Um, the catamaran couldn't slow down, so it was 25 knots. It was nighttime. There was no moon. I've got a tiny head torch on. I can see a metre in front of me. The catamaran sailed away for about 500 metres until they could, could turn and I couldn't get back in my ski. I'd paddled 100k that day. I'm trying to get back in my ski. The chill of the water was like a, like touching an electric vent, like it shocks you. Eventually they're coming back to me. All I could do was hang over my ski until they got back. I was submerged for 10 minutes. By the time I got on board, I was near hypothermic. And I had to get in the water and paddle again the next day. So freezing cold 500k floating in that water with your boat sailing away, it's hard to describe the feeling of vulnerability in that moment. Bon, I've, uh, <laughs> I've heard these stories. I've heard these stories before and just the way you say it, like the way like being here in person and like and hearing you say it, I've got goosebumps. <laughs> like I'm literally, I'm like clinging on to every word. <laughs> I'm clinging on to every word right now. Like, And I'm trying to like paint a picture and you articulate it so well. It's pitch black. You've yeah. got a little head torch on. I imagine you don't have like a, a flashing light on your ski mm-hmm. at all. No, um, we we did later on board. We had some LED lights on the back and later we got a one that was flashing. But in that massive big wide ocean, 
like when you you literally the boat just became a dot sailing away and I remember looking down at my feet so clearly and and seeing a blue light and there was no blue light there later on we figured it's like one of the early signs of hypothermia can be seeing things and I got a bit of a warm feeling up my body as well I was I saw this blue light which still this day is the most random thing ever and the other thing was the ski flipped up and hit me in the head yeah so we, we don't know whether it was a bit of concussion or a bit of hypothermia or a mixture of both. But in that moment, it's just you. You're just floating there. And all I could do was was float. And I remember trying to kick my legs to get closer to the ski and looking up at the night sky. And it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen because there's no light pollution out there. Stars are beautiful. Absolutely. Yeah. So you have this mixed feeling of horror, like fear beyond belief, but also like the beauty of that moment if you can stop and take it in. So I think I taught myself when it was incredibly scary to stop and look around and just chill. They will come back to me. But, yeah, you, you do you do question it all in those moments. What, your, Maddie obviously wasn't on the boat. Your partner Maddie wasn't on the boat at that time. Were you just, so you were just sitting there waiting yes. for the boat to come back? 100%. So Matt was on land. So for the crossing of the bite it was two weeks. It was actually 12 days from point to point basically yeah. and another two days until we saw them. Um, no contact for two weeks. Yeah. He was just following me. It was a dot basically on the screen with the um, boat. It's got like a tracker yeah. so he could track that boat but he was just watching that boat make its way across and watching the huge wind gusts and knowing I was going to be seasick out there. And so you were ready, <clears throat> you knew that it was going to be about two weeks, 16-hour yeah. days, most yeah. most days? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I did and I, by that time, I'd done about <coughs> two months of paddling down the east coast, got to that point but nothing could have prepared me for what was coming and how scary and horrific it was across there. Um, my crew played an incredibly crucial role in getting me through. There were times where I would look to them and gain a lot of strength. Um, it was the most like something out of a movie. At any given time someone was vomiting over the edge because probably half the crew got seasick of, of that. That was as There were seven of us on yeah. board. What's that? Three and a half people. Yeah. Um, half the crew got sick. So I lost eight kilos in that two weeks. Like wow. eight kilos in two weeks, which is I've never, ever done that before. And I could not keep any food down. Like, I was going to say, just take a seasick tablet. Literally, right? <laughs> like not gonna it, keep just throwing everything yeah. up. So I think it was a mixture as well of the exertion as I was paddling, the exertion and the seasickness. It was just – and so you're just paddling 16 hours and feeling terrible. And I was like, you only have to do this once in your life. You never have to come back and do this again. Mm. Get it done now, once and once only. Is there any times where you're like, I'm not gonna do this. Like I'm I'm fully done. Like I can't I can't keep going. Did you ever have those thoughts? I knew that if I stopped at any time to get this world record, you've got to paddle every meter of coastline. So once I made that decision to cut across, it meant that was where my trail was going from the start. So I would have to come back to that point. Because you've got to paddle. Once you paddle a certain section, you've got to continue that section. Right. So even if I stopped halfway across the bite and went in, I'd have to come back to that point and paddle all the way back to shore, which is 500 kilometres. Right. So once I was halfway, it was just as quick to keep paddling to the other side than yeah. to sail back or paddle into land. 
So once I was in, I was all in. What was your favourite part of the trip? Like you said, you you know, you're around dolphins. Yeah. Like imagine West Coast would have been beautiful. Yeah. What was your favourite part? There were so many amazing parts and that's honestly what got me through too. I think coming back down the East Coast and the humpback during the humpback whale season mm. and you got the little calves and their mums and everyone's saying be careful of the calves because they're super playful. They'll come up and try and they've knocked people off their skis before. I was like... There's nothing I can – if they come up to me, there's nothing I can do. And sure enough, we're off Townsville and we saw them, a mum and a calf. And I paddled over to them. By that stage, I was feeling quite confident. And the humpback little calf came right underneath me. And then the massive mum followed. And I just remember seeing her under my skis, something like off Moby Dick, like this massive shadow. And I just put my paddle up and in that moment you're just completely in their hands like what they want to do. And they were just so beautiful and placid. I could hear them singing and they never ever wanted to hurt me. They were just having a look and then one swish of the tail and they were gone. And I was like, you just have this connection with the ocean being so far out to sea. Like I saw shark fins along the way at different times and I would always tap back in closer to my catamaran but you just, it's almost like your ski becomes like part of you and you mm. become part of the ocean. Did you have any shark or croc encounters? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the scariest shark and, and we, you know, Western Australian waters, they're known for big sharks. Of course. South Australian waters are known for sharks. My husband, Matt, tells a story that they were driving near um, Port Lincoln, which is where they do the shark cage diving. Mm. He said there were signs every 500 metres on that beach, do not swim here, like known, like big pictures of sharks. I'm out there paddling 100k out to sea, but we got to WA and um, it was near a place called Carnarvon, which is not that far from Perth. And it was the end of the day. I was 80 kilometres into my paddle and my crewmate suddenly called me into the boat. I got my headphones in. He's called me into the boat. I'm like, what's he what's he doing? Like he wants me to have a feed or something. Yeah, yeah. And then he's, I noticed the urgency. He sat, bolted up, right, and was calling me in. They didn't tell me until I was on the boat. They called me on the boat and said they saw a great white come up next to me, the fin come up next to me. Oh. I did not see it. I did not see it. I'm looking at them, like got the headphones in, no idea. And, um, yeah, literally they, they could see it. And he said it took a deep dive and disappeared. So his view of the catamaran, that's what he was seeing. And I had to get back in that spot the next day. You said you always have someone like looking at you. That's, yep. that's part of the protocol. Yep. But is there anything else that you can do for sharks and crocs? There's, we looked into devices beforehand. There's a lot of mixed opinion about shark shields and things. Yeah. What they say is that shark shields will deter a shark initially, but then they can, and I don't want to go against shark yeah, shield. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What can happen with some devices is that, Sharks can gain a bit of interest is, is what the talk is out there. Once they figure out it's not going to hurt them, they can yeah, right. attack. So we did our research into the shark shields. We, we found that the best thing that I could do is to keep my speed up, yep. come into the boat if needed, especially, I mean, up in the Northern Territory, the big engines of the boat, I, I kept telling myself like – that might help, help. me yeah, a little bit, <laughs> yeah. right? But then apparently some of them are attracted to the engine. So it's one of those things that I never wanted to be a sitting duck and be sitting still. So we would do a dry entry each time I got into the water. We crewmate would put my ski into the water. I would hop in without diving into the water. I was never submerged in the water. Mm. I would quickly then paddle away from the boat and get paddling super quickly. 
always someone, one or two people on Bonnie Watch watching me from either side of the boat. At nighttime, they had the torches. That was probably the scariest part of the whole trip was having my crewmates with torches in the Northern Territory, known for crocodiles, doing spot checks out to the side of the boat. All clear, I'd say, yep, and then I'd paddle again and then five minutes later they'd do another check. Did you do night paddling in Darwin? Yep. Yep, because, because and people <laughs> want to say, why on earth why? are you paddling why? at night, right? Because up there the currents are so strong. So with tides it's six hours on, six hours off. So for six hours the tide will be against you and for six hours it will be with you. Yeah. Throughout that six hours it's at different strengths. So you'll have two hours of a weaker tide, then it will get strong pushing against you, then it's weaker again, then it will turn back the other way. Mm. I would paddle 18 kilometres an hour when the tide was at its strongest with me and two kilometres an hour when it was against me. So you're just prioritising the time, yeah? You've got to paddle with the tides or you go nowhere. So you're climbing down into your ski at night time with your crewmate holding a torch. You're doing your dry entry and trying not to fall in. And I have to remind people as well, um, as you know, because your sister's been on a ski, like they're very tippy. They're very tippy and they're easy to fall out of. And then I would paddle away from that boat and have my head torch on and, and get going. And they saw three crocodiles near me in the Did Northern you see Territory. any? I didn't see them. Thank I God, thank probably. God I yeah. didn't see them. But there's hundreds of logs that look like crocodile heads. That's the other thing I always forget to. So I'd be paddling in the day, the water's brown. And there's logs just floating in the water, right? (laughs) And there's also sea snakes. So sea snakes are yellow with black markings. They're thick as pythons. They coil up at me as I pass. I hate snakes and I'm trying not to hit them with my paddle. Like sea snakes and crocodiles in these waters and you've got to, as I said, you've, you've got to paddle through. You can't miss any section. (laughs) (laughs) that is so wild i was um i listened to a podcast with joe rogan and a girl by the name of courtney dualter yeah you know courtney yeah yeah. yeah. so she's obviously um ultra marathon runner um it's on the moab 250 um huge kilometers like multi-day multi-day runs right and i was listening and this one part stuck with me when you're going for like a couple days running in a row very similar to imagining what you were doing yeah imagine you're like asleep which i want to touch on later but she was like hallucinating like she yeah. like she saw um like an elephant playing the cello in one of her runs like she would see faces mm-hmm. on trees like did you yeah. have any like hallucinations or anything when you were going in or like Surprisingly mental demons? not and i think because when we were doing those huge stints i would try to tap like come into the boat and have conversations with my crew yeah. and i felt like that really helped having that physical presence of other people okay I feel like solo on your own for that and with no one around you would start to see things. So surprisingly not um, but, yeah, I have heard the stories about ultramarathon runners like running through tunnels of like snakes and all yeah. sorts of things. That's absolutely terrifying. Like wow. whether it's because I had real snakes in the water yeah. or <laughs> that kind of thing, I'm yeah. not sure. But um, no, just that blue light, yeah. 500 m. We still don't have an exact reason. But I remember it so clearly. It was like a blue ring around my feet. So I guess I'm saying no, but really yes. And whether that was the ski flipping up and hitting my my head or whether it was me rapidly losing heat from my body, I remember looking down, it was around my feet. And I also remember in that moment having this feeling like if something's going to take me now, this is it. Like there's, there's, as I said, there's killer whales in those waters. Like there's... 
the biggest sharks in the world in those waters that that travel, you know, along that stretch. So I was just like, I'm just floating here and I actually can't get into the ski. <laughs> oh um, you can't get in the ski what because your shoulders are cooked no energy no so energy, just yeah. paddling like 100k because I, I talk about 100k a day that's like absolutely laying on the back deck unable to speak unable to move like in those freezing waters um you know and I'm try I tried five times it's almost like a chin-up style movement you've got to do to get mm. yourself back in the ski I couldn't do it and kept sliding into the water and every time I was like this is it and it was just and, – and anyone knows who surfs or whatever when you're, you know, just at the – you know, really fatigued, even pulling yourself back up onto a surfboard or whatever. You see people in rips at the beach who mm. physically can't get can't. back on their boogie board or whatever. Yeah. It's like that. You just lose more and more energy. So I just had to – Did your surf craft change from when you were competing professionally to the ski that you took out? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, again, that's an awesome question because I forget to explain that. So – Surf life saving, you have an 18 kilo ski that we use in Iron Woman and ski races. Ocean skis are eight kilos at their lightest. So carbon fiber, they're made for downwind surfing the runners. It was perfect for what I did. So they go a lot quicker than a surf ski. Um, they're super resilient, like they're super strong. I would run into that catamaran that many times yeah. getting my lunch and things like that. I only had one ding in my ski the whole time, which you, took, you, took, you would have taken multiple. Took out three there. skis yeah. on board, and we took a thirty kilo ski for the crocodile waters because we thought that's going to be my best chance if one comes up <laughs> to have a big heavy thirty kilo ski. That thing was paddling like a plank of wood. I'm like, <laughs> I may as well just invite them up for a cup of tea. Like this yeah. thing is not moving. I'm just sitting here. I need to be on my fast ski and keep moving and. Whether it was sheer dumb luck, whether the plan to paddle super fast through those waters worked using the currents, I ran the gauntlet and I didn't have a crocodile bump me. But the paddlers before me, some of them had. Really? Which is terrifying, yeah. Um, What was your sleep like? Because I – same with Courtney Dualta, like the exact same podcast. She was talking about how in a three-day race she had 21 minutes of sleep. Yeah, And the the first – the first, um, I think she went maybe two days without sleeping, just running yeah, and, yeah. and shuffling and, and whatever. Yeah. And um, she tried to like lay down and she couldn't sleep because yeah. her adrenaline and she was so pumped yeah, up. Yeah. And so she's just like, she lay there for 20 minutes. She's like, no, nah, let's just keep yeah. going. And so they kept going. And then it got to the point where she was like running all over the shop. She was yeah. dropping and she was fully at the point of fatigue. And she's like, yeah. let's just do one minute of sleep. And so yeah. she was with a pacer and yeah. her and she's like, wake me up after a minute. Yeah. Anyway, she fell asleep. She had woke up and she felt so refreshed and ready to go. Yeah. And she, she almost got angry. Like, why Why didn't you wake me up? I felt like I had a 40 yep. an hour minute yep. sleep. And she's yep. like, he's like, you were asleep for one minute. <laughs> you were asleep for one minute. And yeah. And I think that's where those ultra, because they're racing too, right? Like mm. you're actually physically racing other competitors. So over that time, you've got to keep going. You know, in terms of um, the catamaran, it's like a mini house in there. I'd never been on a catamaran prior. You've, you've pretty much – like, right, like, which, yeah, just, yeah. just literally the, – the, the first time I'd been on catamaran was a week prior to starting this paddle, which is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I would paddle for whether it was 16 or 18 hours a day and then come on the boat and then get back in the next day. But in saying that, it all depended on what the skipper wanted. So if that wind was up at lunchtime, he's like, all right, well, we're starting at lunchtime and you're going to paddle through till two. 
okay. in the morning. Like, yeah, yeah. or, you know, then we're going to start again at eight o'clock. Like it was totally Sporadic. dependent on when he said. So that was something I had to learn as an, athlete, an elite athlete. Listen to him. You can't plan this out yourself. And, you know, if in a perfect world you go, all right, well, each day of paddling, I'll do this amount and then I'll come on, I'll do my stretching and I'll have dinner here. This was like the winds are happening now. And then even the winds changed. So he's like, this was the plan. Now you're actually going to paddle further, paddle until this amount of time. And then we're going to have a bigger break tomorrow. So every day was just so incredibly different. And I had to adapt to that. Like I really had this vision in my mind where I was paddling near South Australia. And he said, okay, we've got 80 kilometers today. We're going to this bay. Awesome. Early knockoff for the day. This is great. The crew were excited. We're going to go swimming in the water. He comes out halfway through the day. You've actually got 120K today. That bay is no longer safe to stop at. We need to go another 40K to get where we're going. And we couldn't just motor there because on that boat, it takes so long to motor. You've got to come back and start here anyway. So I would have to digest that in the water. Where does your mind go when he says, when you're 80 day, I'm going to be good. And then actually we're going to be doing it a little bit longer. Super dark place straight (laughs) away. Like I I couldn't even, I just nodded. I can't even talk to him. I'm like, okay, yeah. Um, And then you go through all of those emotions. It's like frustration, anger, um, you know, and then you start to process it and then you flip it and say, okay, that's 40K extra on this paddle that's 40k more ahead of the world record that I am now right so like I think what I've found with athletes and successful athletes and you have this trait yourself is your ability to flip things or glass half full Mm. or or see the positive side of the silver lining I think I had to keep finding the silver lining in everything because if you didn't you'd go crazy so you can get mad about that and think I was supposed to you know finish early I can barely move. I'm so sore. I need that break. Then you can go, all right, that's happened. I can't control that. What I can control now is thinking how I get through this day as best as I can. That last 40K, am I going to flip it to some like hardcore rap music? Or, really? You know what I mean? Or yeah. like, like I have a nice, like um, one of my crewmates was a DJ. So he'd have this awesome like house music going and I'm like, all right, oh, how good. right? Yeah, like, that's what we like, need. Like, and just flipping it go, okay, like get a bag of treats ready because I'm going to need that. Like whatever it was to get you through. And I think that's anything. Like when you turn up for a game or a race or you can't control, your opposition might be on absolute fire or you turn up to an Ironwoman race and that surf is eight foot you you can't control those other factors all you can control is what you do your approach to it yeah that mindset's like really great like for us sitting here in a comfy living room and like (laughs) when we're feeling good but I imagine when you've just done 100k and you're at the peak and like the peak pit of like you know where your mind is going yeah you're fully fatigued yeah I find that very intriguing I don't think I would have that positive mindset (laughs) going through that you know what I mean yeah it's or is it just reps? It's Well, it's interesting because when I was younger, we had a swimming coach. Yeah. And I so clearly remember he was this the master. At, you'd think you're done, right, for the session. He'd have it on the board, the session. And then you go, all right, get out of the pool. Everyone would get out. Go to the other end. We got drop dead 100. Drop dead 100 is flat out max 100-meter sprint in the pool. He'd have the whiteboard out and the times he expected you to do. 
you think you're done, right? So you're chatting with your friends. You're like, awesome. Good sesh crew. Good Good sesh. We did well. Yeah. Warm down done. It was actually like a warm down getting, you know, flushing with a lactic acid, getting ready for this hundred meter sprint. And he'd have that in his head the whole session knowing he's going to do that, but he wouldn't tell us. And it taught you this resilience to, oh my God, we'd all be devastated. And then we'd say, okay, let's go. We've got to get up and do this. And it was that unexpected sort of, you know, this surprise sprung on us. And it was like that through the paddle. It was like everything I took from different coaches along the way in my journey to get to be an Iron Woman and in my elite Iron Woman career, that all came back to help me. So those bits of resilience, adaptability, um, looking at the positive side and teamwork, I was like, oh my God, that, that started when I was like 10 years old in nippers. And, you know, my age manager was encouraging us to get out in the big surf and we were scared and we had to do it. It started at 12 years old with that coach making us do that drop dead hundred. Like, yeah, those things are built early, those traits. Those experience a hundred percent would make you the type of person you are today. Like I remember doing clubbies at Northcliffe when you were, you, when you were obviously competing professionally, I was a little nipper coming through, but I was the same. Like I would be going to the board sessions at whenever they were five or six, um, with Gav, Gav Hill. Yeah. Gav Hill was yeah, yeah, Shout yeah. out. Shout out Gav Hill. But, um, I remember like even, um, Scotty Unicum, there was a bunch of, um, older yeah. guys and these are, I was so scared to yeah. go out into this big surf. And I remember even like paddling, this is before like being on a mouth, like on the short little clubby boards yeah. and we're paddling out. And I remember just thinking like praying, like almost <laughs> praying, thinking like, God, don't let me die today. I was like, just let me. And and I look back and I laugh about it now. But back then it was so, I was so nervous. But then, I don't know, I I love what you said about how you take that and you look back on it and you reflect on it now. Because I look at those experiences and I fully would have taken that into footy, into business, into like being around friends and family, like overcoming really challenging things. And that's probably why you're so successful now. Well, even like with footy, like you're saying some things, I couldn't do that. I think of someone tackling me like full on that, that scares the hell out of me, you know. And But those traits are built young, like you said, like facing that wave and facing up to that opponent and, you know, backing up and getting back out there, even though you're scared, like that sets you up. And it's always interesting just looking at that, like with professional athletes early career and whether it was mentors or a parents or an older sibling, whoever it was, you know, kind of essentially guiding them and gently pushing them and, mm. and to find their, you know, limits on push beyond those. I think um, that's what this paddle taught me is all of the limits that we think are there might not be there because I got told by dozens of people that I could never cross the bite. They said it's physically impossible. You'd never get the weather window to get across for that long. You can't do that on a ski. You can't do back-to-back 100K days. Mm. I was like, well... I'll find that out when I when I get out there. But hadn't other hadn't people already done that though? No one had cut across the bite directly. So Oh, they hugged the coast. Hugged the coast. I was the first one to do it. Yeah. So there was no blueprint. It was what? like there was no blueprint. It was like, what's it gonna look like? Like, what if I do get seasick? In the end, I could only hold down electrolytes. Like that that's the answer to that. But I put 15 kilos on prior to the paddle in preparation knowing I was going to lose weight. So I I took all of these risks but I remember at different times saying to my crew and they're like, we will be there every step of the way. We're going to be here for you. We can't like do those strokes but we're going to be here mentally and morally and emotionally and yeah. You're a dietitian by trade. What does food look like on the boat? 
at the start, during, and then totally. at the back end. I know the way it describes. I had the perfect plan for nutrition, and then on <laughs> up on day one, the cravings start. Right, yeah. so you're craving like sodium because you're sweating so much, and um, you know I'd crave chips or something. But I would definitely prioritize the protein because I just knew like the you know micro tears in my muscles were going to be huge as I'm pushing my body to do something I'd never done before so lucky to have body science come on board yeah, and huge. those shakes you know 30 grams of protein like as soon as I finished paddling getting that straight in and then we would do some kind of dense meat like you know steak so we would do chicken like it was all pretty basic stuff trying to get lots of spices in for anti-inflammation um when I got seasick, I could not hold fresh fruit and vegetables down to save myself. The mm. fresh stuff was the first to stir my tummy really? up. And it, whether it was the acidity in some of the fruit, um, I just don't know with the vegetables. I thought I could hold them down okay. But basically I would try to make up for it on the days I had off. That's when I would cram in all the fruit and veggie. So it was sort of whatever I wasn't getting while I was paddling and even sometimes that was meat because even that started disagreeing with my tummy. On the days off I would prioritise those and I just remember eating like all day on these days off because your body's still burning, churning calories, trying to repair all the muscle tissue. So it was – a lot of food eaten on the days off, whereas the days on, sometimes I got down to chopped apple, um, hydrolyte and like body science shakes would be like the only thing like in a couple of days. <laughs> Are you taking any like vitamins when yep. you were going through it as well? Yeah, lots of um, supplements, iron supplements as well as a female athlete. I was really surprised um, to get to WA and find that my iron was okay because I'd had low iron in the past mm. and it was sort of testament to the supplements and and eating lots of that, um, you know, red meat on the days off. So I was actually really, yeah, happy with how I went with all of that. When I crossed the bite, mind you, I was so dehydrated. I had to go to hospital. I couldn't really walk after that. Mm-hmm. Um, I was completely depleted. Um, How long were you in hospital for? So just the day day. and it was litres and litres of IV fluids to get the electrolytes back up and and rehydrate my body. Did you feel better after that? 100%. I remember walking out and actually being able to walk out of there. Um, But, yeah, it was um, crazy because once we crossed that bite, we had this feeling of we did that as a team. Whatever happens now, we can can take on. And that was good because the crocodile – territory was coming soon yeah i it'd be nice to have an iv and like the on the boat right like imagine, imagine if you had that like luxury on the boat yeah that that would be like one of the tips i would give if and i hope someone does this paddle one day i hope i hope someone breaks my record i mm. love seeing limits of human endurance continue to be broken and pushed um but one of the things would be if you can get a sports doctor on there yeah for all of those reasons and we were calling my doctor back home and trying to figure out how to manage, you know, the anti-inflammatories with the medication to manage the pain in mm. my back. Like it was just trying to figure it out. What does it look like coming out of a race like that? Like how how long did it take before you felt like a normal human being again? Two months. I yeah. always say it was two months. Yeah. Like, So when I came back, I it's funny because I've got my shoes off now. I wouldn't have worn shoes for that eight months pretty really? much ever. <laughs> And so putting shoes back on was bizarre and I was like, oh, my goodness, this, my feet were so soft from the salt water crossing the road. Like, So we were like when you stand on the shore and look to the horizon, it's 40 kilometres you can see. Hmm. We were 100K out each day. 
So you're out there, it's quiet, like the squawk of a bird makes you jump. It's it's bizarre. So that was eight months of my life was at sea. So I got back and you realise how fast-paced life is here mm. and it actually made me realise how important it is to disconnect because, you know, traffic and horns beeping and all sorts of things, that took me a little while. You almost feel yeah. like you've adapted to this ocean environment where – there were times I had just my couple of crew members around me for like two months. Like I wasn't really speaking to anyone else. So, yeah, it was bizarre. And I remember coming into WA and speaking to a group. It was about 80 people and almost feeling overwhelmed by the amount of people, which is hilarious. I've spoken to groups of a couple of thousand now, like just connection, you know, and it's it's so social connection is so important and in speaking to and meeting and engaging with a variety of people but I didn't have that luxury for for my trip so my crew and I had to get to know each other really yeah. well. <laughs> were you um like in your everyday life now will you go off and just disconnect? I love you, disconnecting yeah. I think for sure and my husband was just in the Solomon Islands for two months I went over there and we were both saying like you've got to top up your data and this is a third world country there's all sorts that they don't have power a lot of the time um there's no hot water he had no hot water for two months Mm. and I think just it was an awesome experience to remind you though you get back to just switching off disconnecting enjoying what's around you Mm. and I think that's one of the biggest lessons this paddle taught me was to take a step back and just appreciate you know where you are at any given time and and going and immersing yourself in nature and whether it's going out for a trail run or a hike heading to the beach like leave the phone, go out and, and enjoy it while you're there. And so you're obviously still doing that, like nature's like yeah. trail runs, like trails. Do does um, any other ultra endurance races appeal to you? So I actually did the Red Bull Defiance. Oh, when did it, you yeah, actually? Which I found out recently was considered one of the hardest. Yeah, yep. yeah. I had no idea how hard it was. I thought I should have known Red Bull, what they yeah. have up their sleeve. <laughs> yeah. It was incredible incredibly tough um it rained the day before up in mission beach so the whole course was like sloshed out in saying that epic memories like sliding on your butt down hills and yes but some of the best endurance athletes there in the world 100%. i got absolutely smashed really? like i was i Did you was going thinking oh you know what i'm gonna, that, I'm gonna yeah, beat these rookies yeah, yeah. it's like oh like you know i have been on the bike just a couple of times yeah. like just getting passed on the bike like i was going backwards and you know, the ski leg was up to it, but a lot of it was the trail running and bike. So nowhere near it. And it was so good to do something I wasn't amazing at. I think that's really healthy. That's nice. Two yeah. of my really good friends, Todd Lubinskis and Trent yep. Knox from yep. Sydney, they yep. they both did it last year, last year in Cairns yep. when, when it was so wet and they, yep. they cut the course because – you couldn't physically ride up these hills, right? Like you're pushing, you're pushing your bike up. It gave me such a respect and yeah. I'm, you know, often everything we do is often upper body related. Like I don't run as much as an Ironman, but it was really cool just to get, you know, Matt and I would go out and run in the middle of the bush How and nice it was so cool. And, and again, doing something where I, I'm starting from a very basic level, having never even been really on a mountain bike. And it's like, this is called learning a new skill and yeah. doing something you're not great at and listening to those around you. It's it's super – it keeps you in check, keeps your feet on the ground. I did a sauna with Mac Horton last week. This week? No, last week. And um, we're talking about doing the Red Bull Defiance next oh, year. Amazing. Are you going to do it? I would so encourage it. 
I think it's been long enough now that I've forgotten how painful yeah. it was. So I'm going to say maybe I'd love to do it with Matt. That would be really cool. We did a, a female team. I did okay. with Beck Wiseman, one of the girls at my surf club. She was incredible. And at different times we would be feeling good and we would get each other through. But it's funny, I was talking about chips before because I remember through the bike leg just bailing up one of the safety guys like at this checkpoint. Like, do you have any chips? And he's just produced this massive like mega bag of chips. And I've taken like five packets and like rode off his who on earth was that girl like yeah. and I think I bailed the next person up so you have to be so all over nutrition because at different times like I thought I was eating enough but yeah. oh my goodness the calories you need to get in it's huge you burn so much I remember I did my yeah. first ultra my first my only ultra <laughs> like I do it all the time no I did one um when I finished footy I did the uh blue mountains the UTA mm. in the blue mountains so beautiful like mm. exactly the same like I love I would much rather do a trail run out in the bush or in nature than just being on the road in a city like 100%. and so we we me and a mate we signed up we wanted to do the 22 kilometer and that's still like a lot of elevation a lot of altitude you're in the mountains but it got sold out so we end up having to sign up for the 50 and I think we had maybe six weeks or seven weeks of training in the lead up which is like not enough time mm-hmm. um and I was talking to a friend Jaidine who does like a lot of running coaching mm-hmm. around the Gold mm-hmm. Coast and um he's like look not enough time but if you're gonna do it like load up uh low like lower body weight so you're gonna have to you don't have to be strong and heels because you're gonna be doing so much altitude so much um but talking like tying back into diet and nutrition it's like we went in like so underdone like cramping up to 17k and like but it's like those events are so cool because you go into like this little headspace where it's just like you've never really been before did you have any similarities between like the the lap around Oz and then when you were doing professional Iron Woman? Yeah, definitely. And I think the reliance on the team around you. I think when I was an Iron Woman, because the squad, I mean, you're racing everyone in your squad, right? Yeah. Like it's t- it's probably really unique in that way in that the swimmers are probably the same, that it's like they're your teammates, but that, that weekend you're setting foot on the line next to them. Mm. I probably never had the support around me that I really, really needed, like in terms of mentors and all that kind of thing. And When you're professional? Yeah. You and I think I never tapped into that. I think I never, you know, some of those older iron women things like picked up the phone when I was, you know, having a hard week of training and, and, and I learnt in this paddle, I've like, I've got this crew around me. They're going to be my best asset. So telling them, like, I remember it, and again, it took me a couple of months to say, today was really hard because they could see I was physically struggling, but I didn't want to detract from their experiences. I didn't want to be in negative. It was the best thing ever because I will never forget what my crewmate said back. He said, me too. Today was really hard. I'm watching you every day paddle, looking for sharks, looking for crocodiles. Like, that's incredible. I can't even, I'd rather be in the water, to be honest, than than looking for sharks around someone like I remember he said that and it started this amazing dynamic where we could tell each other when we were having the hard days and build each other up when we needed to but I I went back to that thing again where we don't want to tell someone that we're having a hard time like because you don't want to burden them but he needed to hear that because then he felt comfortable telling me too because prior to that he didn't want to appear negative so it was awesome because we never pretended like it was paradise and all happy. It was like, this is really hard. Like we're breaking a world record. We're doing this faster than anyone's done it before. 
no one's done this across the bite, including the crew. So I think we all had that respect for each other. And I think as an Iron Woman, I never really did that. I never really went, this is really hard. I just looked at everyone. Everyone's doing it. I just need to suck it up and keep going. It's crazy that when you can be vulnerable with other people, how much willing they're likely to be vulnerable with you. Hey? Exactly. And and I feel that would be the same in a, a team environment, like in footy or or whatever. It's like you can there can sometimes be a, a culture of hard enough, but that's changing now with more education and people people understanding that vulnerability isn't a weakness. It's a huge strength. Because if the whole team can be vulnerable, someone's there to lift them up, right? Like it's it's really cool to see that. Especially in team environments. I had Kalen Ponger on the podcast last week and he talked about when um, he's like, yeah, he's like, vulnerability is literally a superpower. Like it yeah. is such a strength. Like yeah. they would do <clears throat> in their preseason, they would have um, on Monday, each player would like get up and like share a little bit about themselves, like on their journey and you can be as vulnerable as you want. But they created such a great, is that Newcastle Knights? Yeah. Um, they created such a great open, genuine space where guys would be really vulnerable and really open and it created like this sort of bond within them. Yeah. And as soon as like one person set the tone, then it allowed everyone else 100%. to. And I can see like when you're talking with your friend on the boat, like I could see you doing that in real life as well. Yeah. Like, is that something that you're conscious about? Definitely. And as a dietitian, I'm in a position where, you know, I still work in clinic, um, just the one clinic now, but people show that vulnerability to me. And I see how once they get that out it's like oh my god I've told someone about that you know whether they're going through an incredibly hard divorce or family or whatever and for some of them they turn to food you know and Mm. all sorts of things it's just that safe environment when someone feels comfortable it's amazing and then they can set themselves towards their goal and I remember um in the 235 kilometer paddle so we um sorry not the 235 that was done two weeks after the 213 kilometer paddle that i did in far north queensland so the previous record for women was 150 kilometers and i'd bettered that a few times but i had this day where um we had to get to safety it was one of those situations where Basically, I had to do a world record to get us there. And with <laughs> the course. shorter, the long of it, there was huge winds coming. And to get to our safe spot, I had to paddle an incredible amount of kilometres over the couple of days. And so I said, I'm going to aim for uh, over 200 kilometres in 24 hours. Never been done by a female. And I felt this incredible pressure to get it done. I, I set myself that goal, but all of a sudden it hit me like, I've got no evidence that I can do this before. The furthest I've gone is 173K and I remember how I felt after that. And it was the first time I broke and I sobbed and I remember sobbing like I'm on the – this is near the home stretch but I'm sobbing to my crew. And I said, it's okay, like talk me through it. We'll be there. It was two of the guys. And because I let all of those emotions out and how I was feeling vulnerable and having self-doubt, the next day when I got in the water – I went into this like laser-like zone of focus. Like I was this feeling of like, and I'm sure you've had it like something special is going to happen today. And I'm sure you've had that when you sit in the field. Like I've had it when you set foot on the beach. Like today's this, we're on. And I ended up paddling 213K. And it was like all of those emotions I was able to get out and bring up. 
that helped me the next day. And you say like, Caitlin said, it's like a superpower. It, it felt like that. It strengthened me and my crew got it. They knew like that morning they, that they had to be there for me and, and watch me and, and understand that support was going to get me through it. But by the same token, they sort of looked at me and went, you're feeling good, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, let's I said, go. Yeah that, yeah, that one chat we had. And sometimes that all it, it's all it takes. One conversation can just change your whole mindset. Do you pull like a lot of confidence out of that experience in your professional like Iron Woman yeah. like career? Do you pull a lot of confidence out of that for your everyday life now? 100%. Yeah. Definitely. And that's what I'm learning now in the corporate speaking I'm doing is pulling those lessons out to help others as well. Mm. Whether that is like whether that is breaking things down into sections even for school kids, I tell them, you don't have to look at that year as a whole of year 12. It can be so overwhelming. You do the best that you can set yourself your goals for that day and do the best you can have the network around you. And I think so much can be taken from professional sport that can is directly, you know, related to everyday life mm. as if whether that is for students or high end corporates or even a mum just trying to get through the week, balancing, you know, a million different things, um, having the network around you, maybe for her, it's having a conversation with someone and being okay to say, I don't have this. I don't know what I'm doing. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling lost. This is too much. Having that conversation can give her the reassurance. So we all have feelings of self-doubt, whether it's at the highest end of sport um, or in other occupations or, or roles. So, there's a lot that can be learned from elite sport. What does um what does life look like now? Do you do you want to compete in Iron Woman anymore? Do you still want to keep doing that? Or I love the surf ski paddling now. So yeah. I've definitely made that transition into the surf ski paddling. I'm back training, so I'm with Mermaid Beach Surf Club. Right. It's really exciting. We've got Kai Hurst yeah. heading it up there, and Matt Pools just come on board as our board coach. Um, I coach with two amazing guys there as well um, with the nippers. So. Yeah. For me, it's all about, um, you know, basically helping develop these young men and women into better people, um, you know, for them better athletes as well, but particularly making them well-rounded, good humans. Um, so coaching, racing myself, I keep saying it's going to be my last season. Yeah. <laughs> I am going to say that my last season. I said it last year. Um but I do think it is um, Matt and I are looking at doing a trip around Australia next year, which we're really excited about and just almost retracing the steps by wow. land. Um, um, will you get like a, like a troopy or? Yeah, like we've a, just bought one. Did you we've actually? We've oh just bought God. the troopy. So podcast is yeah, going to go so we, much longer than I, I actually, Absolutely. <laughs> we have bought the troopy. So the first step, but in the short term, it's all leading towards this book and documentary coming yes. out. So the book is being published in January. Huge. Um, you know, um, super lucky to um, get a publisher, pick up that book. I wrote it straight after I got back and, um, you know, it dives really deep into my headspace at different times, the challenges of the trip, um, life as an Iron Woman. And then the documentary, we saw the first rough cut the other day. And um, Maddie, Maddie shoot me through the, um, the, uh, oh, the teaser. The teaser. Yeah. I got, I was so pumped up. Like I wanted to go run a trail straight <laughs> after the teaser. Oh, how was that. the, um, how was the reflection period when you were writing the book? Was that tough? It was actually amazing. Yeah. Because it was very, um, you know, almost healing in a way to, to write about certain things, to reflect on the bite and everything we went through to reflect on how scary it is to paddle in waters known for crocodiles and 
at the same time kind of just, you know, be really proud of myself. And yeah. I think we often don't do that. We don't often just stop and go, wow, that was really cool what I did. Like that's awesome. Um, and it sort of gave me time to do that. I was able to talk to my crew and, you know, relive some of the memories and I'm really excited because different parts of the book feature them as well. And it's almost like in different sections. They're almost like a character in a book except it's a real-life book that they were pivotal in these moments and and um, certain parts of Australia will always stand out to me where certain people's traits and characteristics came out in the best way possible. So um, whether it was helping me, whether it was – you know, reminding me to take in the scenery and slow down a little bit because for the first two months I was just streaking ahead and paddling flat out and eventually I went, I'm not seeing any of the coastline and taking it in. And the moment I started doing that and enjoying it, the paddling got so much better too. Can we pre-order the book now? Absolutely. So you can pre-order the book. I've got it on my socials, so at Bonnie Hancock um, on Instagram, the links there, the girl who touched the stars. So um, I'm really, really excited. The girl yeah. who touched the stars. I'm yeah. so excited. I'm going to pre-order it when you leave. You. And I'd love to get you, get you to sign it when when, when, they're, when, when they're going. Absolutely. Um, and the documentary, when does that go live? Yep. So we're just finalising that at the moment um, where it will be shown. So I will have that info out as soon as it's up but I can tell you that it's very exciting and um yes a lot of hectic hectic stuff well your eyes the teaser was insane will you do like a little premiere or anything definitely yeah absolutely and hopefully that'll be not long after the book so book in uh end of January hopefully we're looking in the next couple of months for doco great it's so exciting um Bon is there anything else that you think we've missed that you'd like to touch on before before Um, we wrap it up no the only one um and we did touch on it um gotcha for life gotcha for life yes which you raised one hundred and two thousand dollars for. yeah yeah a bit over a hundred thousand in the end um they're an amazing charity. I'm now an ambassador for them. Right. So it's cool. It's come full circle. Um, you know, I started out planning this paddling COVID. I saw the rates of mental health declining across all groups, particularly the youth age group, which is really concerning. I thought that's the charity I want to help, right? Like I looked at a few different charities. I thought someone needs to do something about this. And there's so many people who are, how can I contribute? Um, and the coolest thing was everyone who donated jumped on the Gotcha for Life page, saw what they were about. Mm. Their biggest thing is that they say it's never too young to start talking about mental fitness and start educating people on how to look after themselves and those around them. And their key line is that no one should worry alone. So everything we've touched on in the podcast today and leaning on those around you and being vulnerable, vulnerability is a, a strength. That's what they're about. So they're incredible and shout out to them and, and they're doing amazing things. Oh, they are doing amazing things and it's so cool that that's the charity that you picked, obviously very aligned with mental health. Yeah. Um, that money, where does that go? What kind of – do they roll out workshops? What, what Absolutely. Do, what do they do? So they do workshops from as young as primary school age right through to corporates um, and it's just educating people where to go when you need help, what to say when someone comes to you, what does that good mental fitness look like, mm. who's your village, who are the – five people around you that you can lean on at any given time and even just recognizing that village is the first step so yeah I help to deliver those workshops it's it's really really special Bonnie thank you so much for coming on board today thank Thank you for coming on like honestly I I don't think I've ever been so inspired after a podcast and I know you're inspiring the next generation of athletes coming through so thank you for coming on thank you for being vulnerable and talking about your own experiences um 
I'm really keen to see, you know, the training, the community that you're going to be doing at Mermaid Surf Club. Um, I'm going to be watching you compete uh, this year and next year, hopefully. <laughs> we'll see, maybe a couple <laughs> we'll more see, seasons. Exactly. But no, thank you so much. I'm, I'm so grateful to have you on today. Thank you. Such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Such a good chat.